0: Hi, Jason Dressel here. And before we start this episode of History Factory Plugged In, I wanted to share my deepest condolences to the family and friends of Alan Kelly. Uh, For those of you who listened to the episode just a few episodes ago, Alan Kelly was on this podcast and um, I really enjoyed reconnecting with him after meeting him 10 years ago. And last night, I learned that Alan Kelly had unexpectedly passed away on April 13th. So um, just as we were about to wrap up uh, this podcast episode and get it launched, we heard the news. So again, my
1: deepest condolences to Alan Kelly's family and friends. Rest in peace, Alan.
0: Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and today we're going to talk tractors and tractor history. After all, it's springtime on the farm, so what better time to talk about the impact that tractors have had on the changing landscape of agriculture? Sorry, I had to do it. Today, we get to hear from Neil Dahlstrom, who is the author of the new book, Tractor Wars. John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. And before we hear from Neil, I'll share a little personal history. And uh, it just made this conversation with Neil that much more fun. Uh, I I come from a family of farmers in North Carolina. And when I was a kid, a toddler, really, in the 1970s, my favorite toy was a John Deere die-cast pedal ride toy. Uh, And I remember two things about it. It was incredibly heavy and the seat was often cold. And I remember that because I may or may not have had a tendency at the age of two or three to sit on the tractor bare bottomed. Um, But hey, if you go online, I can uh, assure you that you'll find examples of of a lot of people who didn't grow out of that. So no judgment. But I loved this uh, toy as a young kid. And it really helped set an affinity uh, for me for John Deere. And being on my grandparents' farm in the 1970s and 80s was like heaven on earth. There was this incredible cast of characters who worked on the farm. There were dirt bikes and three-wheelers and fishing and always things to do. And of course, as I got older, I loved to be able to drive the tractors as well. And we had a bunch of tractors, but my favorite tractor by far was a green John Deere that had a radio and an air-conditioned cab. And I remember when my grandfather got this thing, it was like his version of a Gulfstream. I mean, this thing was a total game changer, as you can imagine, uh, working in the fields in, in the depths of summer in North Carolina. And I looked it up and the tractor was the John Deere 4440, which I believe was the first to have a radio and air conditioned cab. And it was such a nostalgic moment to go back and read about it that I confess, I bought a little die cast John Deere 4440 toy. Uh, so John Deere's legacy of marrying the brand with toys still works. On our farm, we also had a red International Harvester tractor, which I think it may have been my grandfather's favorite. I think he and that International Harvester must have really had some, some farm battles together because... He seemed to always have a soft spot for it, even after it was clearly an antiquated piece of equipment and not you know, the best, the best tractor on the farm. And we also had a blue Ford tractor as well. Um, so all of this just made uh, the conversation with Neil Dahlstrom all that much more interesting and uh, to really learn about the origin story of the tractor market and how Ford, International Harvester, and John Deere and company were positioned a century ago. So Neil Dahlstrom is the branded properties and heritage manager at John Deere, where he oversees the John Deere Pavilion, John Deere Tractor and Engine Museum, John Deere Historic Site, as well as the Corporate Archives and Library, among other areas. He's the author of articles and books on American agricultural history, farm equipment entrepreneurs, and brand history, including the John Deere Story, a biography of plowmakers John and Charles Deere. Neil has appeared on the History Channel's The Machines That Made America and Modern Marvels and PBS's History Detectives and National Geographic's Ultimate Factories, as well as uh, his latest book, as I mentioned before, is Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture, which came out in January and is readily available in a number of formats from a number of different retailers. So check it out and check out this conversation with Neil Dahlstrom. Neil, welcome so much to History Factory Plugged In.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, congratulations on Tractor Wars. So uh, excited to talk to you about it. And um, maybe maybe we'll start with just sharing a little bit about what the inspiration was for creating the book.
1: I, I think a lot of things in, inspired it, but really it, it grew out of research. It, uh, we were preparing for the hundredth anniversary of the John Deere tractor in 2018. And I started that research in 2016 as, as far as I can remember. And, and of course you're preparing for something specific. So you're lining up assets and stories and resources, and then you keep kind of squirreling things away saying, well, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I'm going to get back to that later. And so this really just kind of grew out of, out of that planning and that research.
0: What was, what were the kind of assets that, that inspired the idea? Were there some specific messages or stories that you knew you wanted to get across in, in this, in this story?
1: Yeah, there, there were, and really I got drawn in by, by some documentation, um, about a trip that some dear engineers made to go visit Henry Ford. And, and so I just thought that was interesting. I knew Ford had, had introduced his, his Fordson tractor, but I didn't really know a lot about it. And kind of a dark, dirty secret I've held as the archivist of John Deere is that I, in the past, prior to this, I hadn't spent a lot of time doing tractor research. The the assumption is I I sit around all day and I research old tractors. Reality is I just hadn't other people had, and, and, you know, there's a huge fan base and collector base and all that. It just hadn't really been in my scope.
0: Interesting.
1: So, so I ran into this, this Henry Ford relationship. And, and what struck me was it was a very detailed report written um, by Theo Brown, who was an engineer at Deere. And he had this conversation with, with Ford, which he recounts in this, in this document that was given to the board of directors. And he says, well. You know henry henry ford wants us to build a plow for his for his tractor which is curious because deer had just released its own tractor um and and ford asked me how long we'd been in business and i said about 80 years and he asked me how much profit we generated in those 80 years and i said oh probably about 50 million dollars and he said well i earn that every year so I want you to build a lot of these and you should probably just listen to me, which is is not surprising. But what Theo Brown and the board discussed was we think Ford's got it wrong and we don't know that he's going to succeed, which is an incredibly bold thing to say to hmm. the largest automobile manufacturer in the world, you know, very early. And I thought, boy, that's, that could have gone terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: so so to that point, what did agrarian life look like at the beginning of the twentieth century before the tractor came to market? because um to your point, you know John Deere, which you know many of us now associate with tractors, had been in business for eighty years already, so um what what did kind of the the agrarian life look like in the beginning of the 20th century when the tractor when
1: the tractor came on the scene it it really hadn't changed a lot in the previous 100 years i mean really two major innovations in the industry was was John Deere steel plow in the 1830s um and the the reaper developed by Cyrus McCormick the, the international harvester um in in the story which really helped increase production. But what you saw in the 19th century was just some kind of s- small innovations in similar machine forms. Uh-huh. And, and so the size of farms hadn't grown, productivity hadn't really um, grown in any, any measurable way. It's just kind of uh, incremental gains. You, you start to see the introduction of the farm tractor through steam power in the late 19th century, the early 20th century some gasoline powered tractors that are good for enormous kind of commercial size farms out West and, and, and in Canada and in South America. Um, but it, but it really isn't until the early 20th century where you start to see a a transition from wood in farm implements to steel. So
0: -hmm. that's
1: one big innovation in addition to the farm tractor, which goes from large tractors to a small tractor that, you can operate on most farms. Most farms are less than fifty acres. Yeah, um, but you're not even you're you're not even growing anything on the fifty acres because you can't cultivate more than ten or twelve.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and coming from a family of of farmers, that that, that sounds about right. And did, when the tractor came onto the scene, was it was the sort of value proposition, if you will, just about increasing productivity? Were there new challenges that? um the farmers were facing in terms of were there less were were families smaller or less people around or was it purely a case of just obviously increasing product productivity?
1: At the end of the day, it was about increasing productivity, but you I mean there's there's these kind of mega trends is how we'd say it today, right? There's yeah. there's these things going on like rapid population growth. And and it's more localized. Like if you're an American farmer, you're thinking about the United States. But you've got population growth, you've got people moving from rural America to cities. There's a lot of new factory jobs, um, of course. And then you get you get World War One uh, thrown into the mix here uh, in the early 20th century. But but the automobile, I think, can't be overlooked here because Americans have mobility. So that's what the automobile does is it gives people mobility. Now you can leave the farm. Mm. You know, you don't, you don't have to get on your horse. You're not, you're not hitching up a horse and wagon. Now you can get in your model T um, and and you can drive to town. So you kind of have this mobility and newfound freedom. So all these things are kind of factoring into the equation. Mm. Um, and it's just kind of changed the entire landscape. But what it does for the farmer now is you can, you can take, you can take your produce, you can take your corn. And and you can take it elsewhere. You're not relying on people to come to you. Now all right. of a sudden you're you're not just a sustenance farmer. You can try to grow your operation. Yeah, Interesting.
0: So against that backdrop, you have kind of the origins of 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 the tractor industry, if you will. And and as your your book portrays, you know the kind of major players in that at the beginning are are Ford and and then Deere and and International Harvester. And I imagine deer and international harvester, of course, are already kind of in the, they're already in the farmer's industry, uh, Ford less so. Um, so you mentioned that one of the things that you discovered that inspired this book was this kind of idea that that the deer leadership thought that Ford had it wrong. What was it about his his approach that they thought was misguided?
1: The, the main factor was this, this idea that we're going to build one farm tractor and it's going to suit everybody. Uh. And, and it was, you know, it just kind of followed the, the mode of, of the model T and the assembly line process, which is, they're all going to be the same. And, and deer and international harvester said the same thing, which was farms don't work that way. You know, my, my land is so different than my neighbor's land. And even within my 50 acres, I may have seven different operations. Because of soil type, or you know, it's hilly over here, or this this part retains water, one size fits all isn't isn't going to cut it. Um, so, you know, my farm is different than my neighbor's farm, and that's different than someone the next state over, and, and certainly on the other side of the of the country. So that comes about through this kind of deep understanding of of your customer base. Yeah, uh, that they just didn't think Ford had. I mean, Ford grew up on the farm. He he had some sense of that, but his model was volume. And yeah. um, farm equipment manufacturers, yeah, there was volume, but that wasn't wasn't their emphasis.
0: Yeah. So so as you got into this, you know, so what so what in kind of summary were the three approaches to the three different front runners uh, you had it sounds like ford taking very much the same approach of mass scale that they took with the automobile um deer taking a more nuanced approach given their experience in the industry and how they've been building plows for 80 years or whatever you know and then what was international harvester's approach
1: yeah it's a good question because it's i mean it's very much born out of of who the companies were the international harvester is one of the largest companies in the united states yeah um they're a 100 million dollar a year business and 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 so they're they're the incumbent and 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 they're the company everyone's chasing they they were formed in 1902 um, from a consolidation of of harvesting equipment manufacturers and others so they had what was called a full line they built everything for the farm everyone's chasing them um deers 10% the size of international harvester so deer isn't the deer that we think of today. They're they're trying to 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 jockey for position and figure out how do you compete with international harvester. Um, so so harvester is kind of the incumbent. They've been they were designing automobiles and trucks in the in the late 19th century. They were the front runner in the early tractor industry. So that's who everyone's chasing after. Deer's trying to figure out how to get into The harvesting business which they do in 1912 to compete with ih knowing that now harvester is going to come after me um and then figuring out what's the landscape what's the market for the farm tractor which no one's really sure if it's going to take off or not and that was deer's dilemma how do we raise the capital to go into this business and how do we do it um so they're 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 figuring it out henry ford says i'm going to build a lot of them and I'm gonna sell them really inexpensively and I'm gonna flood the market. And so that was his approach. But what he did was he, I, I think he accelerated the industry probably by a decade because yeah. now they were just in operation for the first time. Yeah,
0: interesting. And was Deere able to concurrently build plows to, uh, to uh, uh, be compatible with Ford's product while also building their own?
1: They were, and it's it's an important part of, of of the story that I think really gets overlooked, which is if you're selling farm tractors, you have to redesign every implement you build because they're not right. compatible. A horse-drawn tractor or a plow is not compatible with a with a tractor. right. Um, so deer is is custom designing um, plows for Fordson. By the way, so is every other manufacturer under the sun because sure. especially if you're a small company, that's that's your, your ticket to profitability. Cause Ford says I'm not building implements cause there's no money in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so everyone's doing it, but while that's going on, deers got their own internal R and D program, trying to develop their own farm tractor. They've established some criteria. And this is one of the things I found fascinating about the deer story is they set criteria in 1912. This is how we're going to go about it. Here's the potential scenarios. We can design it and build it ourselves. We can outsource it. Uh, we can just go buy somebody. We can outsource just the engine. So they had all these different scenarios. Um, and that kind of defined how they went about it and decisions they eventually made, um, which I just found really, really interesting because it required a lot of discipline Yeah. You know, to do it that way. And, and so how are you very deliberate in your process? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was just kind of striking for me.
0: Yeah. It's also just so striking to your point about how core to kind of the DNA of each company in terms of just the philosophy that they went about. And, um, you know, they they all they all sort of succeeded in their own way in terms of, you know, taking it to the next place. And even though Ford ultimately didn't stay in the tractor space, I mean, they, they stayed there for, for a while. Um, and I don't know. I mean, does your book get into also just the impact that they're – entry into the tractor market might have had on their success in the automobile and later the trucks market trucking market.
1: Yeah. And really the, the two are linked. I mean, yeah. you, you can't separate the Ford's and tractor from, from the model T and other automobiles. Um, for one, the Ford, Ford motor company, the board of directors refused to let Henry Ford build a farm tractor. So he had to go create huh. a new company. Yeah. Uh, so he did that. And then soon after staged this hostile takeover of his own company um, in order to to eventually merging the operations. So you know that's part of 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 the book, which is all these things that are going on behind the scenes, which is really fascinating. Wow. Um, and and really, one of the reasons Ford left the business was because of the automobile and declining market share of the Model T. yeah, yeah. so so these things are related. And Ford leaves the tractor business. He he re-enters later. Um, That's something that keeps coming up. People say, well, he didn't leave. Well, yeah, he left. I didn't say he didn't come back. (laughs) But the book ends when the book ends. So he's gone.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I saw that uh, and... I thought to myself, I thought the Ford tractors were around longer than that. Cause I remember my family having an international harvester and a deer and uh and a Ford, you know, like in the 1970s and in early 80s. Um, so yeah, that, that's an interesting point how they got out and then got back in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if you really want to dig deep into it, you know, you can follow all of these brands and mergers and acquisitions and you know, who gets to use whose name and what color of machines, like those all have origins, you know, a hundred years ago. Oh yeah, totally. What were,
0: what, what was kind of one of the biggest surprises that you encountered in your research?
1: Well, really the first one was that John Deere was part of the book, which, which seems like a really funny thing for the, the Deere archivist to say. But when I started the, the intention wasn't to write a book about John Deere's origins in the farm business, even though this started with research for our hundredth anniversary. Yeah. Um, I was, I wanted the story to develop based on the research. And, and, and so part of that is because you have information available to you and resources available to you, but kind of figuring out how the story fit. So actually that was a surprise to me where I was like, Oh yeah, John Deere actually fits in this story. Um, they're, they're really an integral part of, of this early development. Cause I wasn't quite sure, which seems even when I say it out loud, seems silly to say. Yeah. And
0: what, and what was the experience like being obviously the historian and archivist at, at Deere where you've been for many years and then conducting research into these other corporate archives, um, what was that experience like, were you getting good support from, from, from your colleagues, uh, uh, at, at, the other, at the other organizations?
1: I, 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 got tremendous support and, and it's funny because I, I probably make a bigger deal out of it than it is, which was, I kind of go in on eggshells and go, Hey, I'm kind of working on this project. And can you, like, are you willing to share with me? And, and the answer was always, well, yeah, <laughs> why, why wouldn't we? Yeah. Um, like, I, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't, but it, typically it comes down to resources. You don't want to impose on people. Sure. Um, but I, I was fortunate, uh, you know, the, the board was, was great sharing. And, and of course, a lot of the, the Ford tractor resources are actually at the Henry Ford, the, um, McCormick collection for international harvesters at the Wisconsin historical society. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest challenge was just wrapping up research during COVID. Yeah. Where normally I would just drive to Madison and sit down there for a week. Well, you know when you're having to plan that six months in advance and get on a schedule and figure out what you want to look at. So I was really, um, really beholden to archivists who were willing to do some research on my behalf and tell me what to look for and not look for, because I, I believe very much in in-person research because sometimes you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. And, and a keyword search only only allows you to find what you're looking for.
0: Right. It doesn't allow you to go archival shopping, as I call
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I had the the luxury of that at Deer because I'd sit here with the records all day. Right. And, um, you know, I could I could squirrel something away and say, yeah, I'll come back to that when I have some time. So I, I had the the luxury of that throughout the process. Yeah.
0: So for the, for those who may be less familiar with the, the the day in the life of a of a corporate uh archivist, what 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 does your job entail there in the deer archives? It's, Since it apparently doesn't entail doing a lot of research on tractors historically.
1: <laughs> it, it it doesn't unless somebody asks. I mean, I mean, I think that's the 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 kicker when it comes to archives is is oftentimes you don't you don't know about something until somebody asks you to look for it. Right. Yeah, and and so of course, a, a lot of what we do is is related to communication. So much is is around social media now. Um, there's there's supporting everything from someone's someone's writing a speech to maybe we have a new product rollout. Um, for example, we have a, the 75th anniversary of of the John Deere self propelled combine this year. So you have a lot of those sorts of activities. We we manage a visitor center, a museum, a historic site. So a lot of it is we're doing research for programs and events and exhibits and communications that we're doing ourselves, right. um, versus well I'm here and and this is this is what I'm interested in so I'm going to spend my day looking into it. There's there's a lot less time for that than I think people imagine. Yeah, exactly.
0: And what what are a few of your favorite items in the Deer Archives?
1: Yeah, that's a really hard question. My my go-to answer is always we have mr john deere's two piece wool bathing suit which is incredible because we don't have a lot from mr from mr deere who's uh who never saw a tractor by the way uh definitely didn't invent the tractor because he never saw one he was he he died in 1886 um but but uh yeah it it for me it tends to be manuscripts it tends to be correspondence especially handwritten correspondence yeah. which, which I enjoy going through, and uh, just just things that most people don't get to see. And a, a lot of things have been published over the years. I like getting into a little deeper and kind of weaving those stories together. And at the end of the day it's it's about what people were talking about, and that's what I go to. You can write a book about tractors, but people are still designing it and 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 selling it and supporting it. Um, those Those are the exciting uh, pieces to me. That's cool.
0: And what, what, what is the John Deere kind of origin story?
1: So John Deere um, was, was a blacksmith from Vermont and um, he moved to, to Grand Tour, Illinois in, in oh, over the winter of 1836, 1837, which was the frontier at that period in time. And uh, he developed his self scouring steel plow in 1837 Slowly went into the plow making business. He was one of 2000 plus plow makers in 1860. So it was hmm. a very, very competitive space, but he moved to Moline, Illinois in 1848, which was about 70 miles from Grand de Tour. And, um, deer headquarters has been here ever since. Wow.
0: Amazing. Well, Neil, congratulations on the book tractor wars, and, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you.
0: great conversation with Neil. What a cool job he has. These company and brand historians just get to do really cool stuff. And we will uh, continue to talk to a number of them in upcoming episodes of History Factory Plugged In. Until then, uh, this concludes this episode. Uh, Thanks again for for listening. Uh, We'll have a a next episode of History Factory Plugged In coming out in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Until then, be well. And thanks again for listening. I'm Jason Dressel.